Hello everyone, welcome to New Deco Unfiltered. I am your host, Giacomo Byros, and I am so excited for you all to be joining us today. In these podcasts, we are going to share deep conversations with some of today's most inspiring and award-winning musical artists. We're also going to dive deep with forward-thinking music entrepreneurs, top CEOs, and leaders in our industry. And finally, we're going to listen to a whole lot of amazing music. All right, everyone, we are so excited to get New Deco Unfiltered, our new podcast off the ground. We are thrilled that you're here joining us today. Let's dive right in. everyone. So excited to have our next guest, Joachim Horsley, joining us here on New Deco's Unfiltered podcast. Joachim is a great friend to New Deco and to myself personally. We're so excited to get to talk with you today. Joachim is a composer, a pianist, and a ranger. I could just tell you that he's a jack of all trades in the world of music. He can do just about anything. He's recently created the original music scores for the Disney animated TV series, Big City Greens, as well as DreamWorks Spirit Riding Free, among lots of other work you've done in Hollywood for Netflix, Cartoon Network, National Geographic, which I believe the show Migrations actually won an Emmy for. I know you did some work on that one as well. In 2019, your Via Havana album, which is what we're going to speak a lot about today in terms of our collaboration together, was praised in the French publication Le Figaro as a masterful album, which I 100% agree on. It's one of the most incredible things ever. The album features piano-driven reimaginings of classical music through Afro-Cuban and Afro-Caribbean rhythms, which we're going to really dive into. So this album and so much more, what we're going to talk about today is is regarding you as a genre-bending artist regarding you as a collaborator for New Deco and you know you're just uh, you're someone that we we not only loved to work with but you have a great personal story as well and background that we are just really excited to get into today so welcome to the podcast welcome to New Deco's unfiltered podcast Joachim Horsley let's dive in Ready? All right. Yes, I'm ready. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. You are welcome. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now. And it's been a crazy time. We've been dealing with COVID. It's just mm-hmm. after Thanksgiving now. Um, you know, the music has stopped for a little while, of course, now eight going on about eight months for a lot of artists and musicians. But you work in film, TV, and other areas. And I know you've been in the studio recently as well. So what yeah. do you have going on right now? So uh, I've, I feel very lucky because I've been able to work through the pandemic on film and television. Right when the pandemic happened, I was working on an ABC show called The Baker and the Beauty. I basically, I got the job and a week later, it was like shut down, but it was quite an interesting situation. And of course, I'm just going, whew, I'm so glad I have a job. And then I did the music for an animated Batman movie called Batman Soul of the Dragon, which is coming out in January. That was super fun. It was was really crazy because I had to record an orchestra during a pandemic here in L.A., and that was very challenging. That was probably... 
to be honest, that was the hardest film and TV project I, I've ever had. It was a huge amount of music. I had to write 80 minutes of music in six weeks Oof. and record and record it. And I, I, I basically got all my friends to help me yeah. uh, and record recorded every most people remotely. But we can talk more about that. But that project was was massive. It was really fun, and everyone I worked with was actually really great. It was just the circumstances were what they were. And then while I'm doing all that, I'm always working on a show called Big City Greens, which is a Disney animated show. And again, one of the things about animation is it's one of the few engines in Hollywood that can keep going. It's a really good crew at Disney Television Animation. So I feel very fortunate that was basically I've been gainfully employed through the pandemic. Um, and but I miss my concerts and obviously all that got canceled, you know. Yeah. But again, I, I definitely consider myself lucky. But, yeah. You know, but wow. So you got into the studio with musicians and recorded the soundtrack to this Batman animated series. Um, yeah. I feel like we spoke a little bit about it a few weeks ago, but yeah. What was that like for the first time coming back together and working with musicians again after having this big hiatus off for you personally? It, what was most challenging is obviously everybody was concerned about getting sick, uh, whether it was on the production team, and it was new territory for everybody. We had to figure out a way to record an orchestra. And obviously, as you know, um, it's not like data entry. You know, it's like when an orchestra plays together, they tune together and they mm. have to they have to coagulate together. Right. Mm. Like they become yeah. uh, they have they listen to each other and all the micro tuning that happens, especially with the string players. Right. The solution that we figured out is we recorded the strings in a room, there was one studio in LA open. Uh, my friend Noah Gladstone, uh, he, he had his studio open, and he we, 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 we he had HEPA filters put in, and this was the middle of July, and you know Capitol and Warner Brothers, all the big studios in LA are just shut down, right. and we were as safe as possible. The score um, is kind of a 70s throwback thing, like pre-disco 70s score. So it's like this, think like Enter the Dragon meets uh, Batman. That's Ooh, what the movie is. So, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I don't know if it'll be out by the time this podcast's out, but it, it's a, it's it's coming out uh, in January. So it was awesome. really fun. And um, so we recording the strings, that was kind of the anchor, right? So everyone could tune to the strings. I figured if we could get them in tune, with, um, with the rhythm section, which generally speaking, a, a rhythm section I record separately anyway. The guitarist would, would track his stuff. Um, the bass player, uh, he, he played he played from his home too, and percussionists and drums, they all played from their home, and we made a rhythm section. And then we recorded the strings on top of that. So the strings tuned to the rhythm set, to the bass player and the guitarist, basically. And then we recorded brass, winds, and... Uh, uh, they all recorded. They multi-tracked at home, and that was that was challenging. So, one acoustic trick that we did is I have a small room in my studio here. I would play back the brass as a group into my small room and record the small room, and that was like a virtual overhead sound. Wow! And as you know, the the overhead sound from the orchestra is really important because yeah, you know, we, you want that group sound. So I had to fake the group sound, and actually, it, it worked. It worked well. It was a little challenging for like oboes to tune with flutes, you know, like kind of like they're kind of guessing. But because we had the strings in there, the tuning was pretty good. So at the end of the day, we had a very professional, wonderful sounding recording. Um, but we had to figure all this out because no one had ever done this before, right? Uh, I think it's really amazing. This shows the resilience of not only you as an artist and uh, all the artists you're working with out there in LA, <clears throat> but it speaks to what is happening now and being yeah. relevant for our time, you know? And, mm -hmm. you know, I kept hearing for months and months and months when things get back to normal, when things get back to 
normal. We start having concerts again. We start doing this again. You know, to me, I think it's not super healthy to think or wait for the day where everything's going to be back to normal again. There is, this is the normal. We are in normal and we have to understand Mm -hmm. as artists and musicians that we have to be nimble. We have to be, we have to be smart about how we want to present our music out forward now to the future. And we have to think about all the things that we need to do to create new pathways for ourselves that that allow us to be expressive, but at the same time work within the constraints that we have to work with. And I think it's incredible that you were able to do that in like the height of this, um, of this moment to still get people together and and make an album, make a recording. We did a few uh, little remote recordings ourselves and it was challenging, but also I think it's just, it's a good experiment in a way. It's a good test run to like figure out how we're going to move forward in the future. So I do want to get into a little bit of our music and our collaboration. Uh, Oh yeah. Audiences out. Joachim Horsley came to Miami and performed with us on Global Cuba Fest. That was in 2018, I believe, or 19. No, 19. 19, 19, March, right? Right. March just, 9, 2019. Wow, man. Time. Just a minute lines. ago. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, man. And uh, it was really an incredible experience. You write such wonderful music. You're such an incredible Thank orchestrator. You. And just to back up a little bit, you and I first met at the Kennedy Center, uh, yeah. both performing um, with the National Symphony Orchestra and with Ben mm-hmm. Folds um, mm-hmm. on their Declassified series where they take a sort of inside out look at music and break it down and cross genres. Ben Folds and I, as personally, yeah. have been working for years together and you've been working with him. You've helped him on his concerto, the right his piano concerto, which I think is awesome. Um, but we got to play Beethoven in Havana with the National Symphony. And I thought yeah. to myself, who is this guy writing this music that's just <laughs> jamming, man? I mean, you just do yourself a favor after this podcast, everyone who's listening, go to YouTube, look up Beethoven and Havana, just watch this. It's the most astonishing, fun, just incredible genre-bending music that I, I, I can't even speak about. It just it infuses the joy, the love, the 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 artistry of Cuban rhythms and and this Cuban, Afro-Cuban, Afro-Caribbean style into classical music in such a profound and interesting way that I never would have thought works as as well as it does. Your Beethoven in Havana is just outrageous. It's so cool. So we did a five or four four or five piece set and we ended up performing here in New Deco after that concert because I came back and I remember telling Sam, I was like, Sam, we got to work with this guy, especially for Global Cuba Fest. And you know what the question was all the time was, well, hey, is he Cuban? Is he a Cuban musician? And it didn't even dawn on me that that's a question I should ask because it is a Global Cuba Fest concert. We do want to celebrate Cuban artists. And I think the way we convinced all of ourselves that we needed to do it is because the music was so strong and it was so authentic. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the project itself, uh, which mm-hmm. is is an album out now and it's been something you've been working on for years and now you're, I know you're moving on to other things, but um, tell us a little bit about the project. But what I would like to know is a little bit about the history of how you got to the point where you knew you wanted to do this and, and how did you fi- figure out what composers you were going to use to genre bend because you have Saint-Saëns, you have Mozart, you have Beethoven. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe a little experience about your, your Cuban connection and why Cuban, why these rhythms and how it just affected you personally to be able to want to have that passion to write this music in this new way. Oh, okay. Well, before you answer that, I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead. Everybody... 
this album exists on all DSPs, digital streaming platforms now. It is on Spotify, Amazon, iTunes. Do yourself a favor and download it or listen to it via Havana, right? It's called Via Havana. Mm-hmm. Via Havana, yeah. Via Havana. Walk, Joachim Horsley, you got to check it out. You're going to love it. You're going to put it on all the time. All right. Sorry. I just <laughs> oh, got to do that plug. And we'll, we'll play for our audiences some of the music, too, as well on this podcast. Great. Man, thank you so much. Um, well, you know, uh, so I grew up, I, I studied classical music when I was a kid, and I played um, until about ninth grade. I had a classical piano teacher who outright fired me because I was just, st- I stopped practicing. I got bored. <laughs> you got fired? Yeah. I got fired. I totally fired. I, everything, actually, I've gotten fired so many times, and every time I get fired, it's like a life-changing event. That's like the story of my life. Wow. So I, like, look forward to the next time I get fired because I know something's good is around the corner. Oh, Maybe wow. I shouldn't say that. We should but, talk about that, actually. <laughs> It, it is like a, like a running joke in my life. But yes, my ninth grade piano teacher like closed the book and was like, I'm done with you. You are not practicing. Go play. She literally said, go play some music where fingering doesn't matter. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Like, like, that's how she thought of jazz. Like, like uh, you don't have to have technique to play jazz, right? Oh, gosh. So I went to music camp that summer. And uh, I mean, this was not the first person who wasn't open-minded I've worked with. You know, that's the story of music. You, you meet people who want to close the door before anything else. So that's okay. So I, I, I went to music camp. I went to Encore Coda. It was like a blooming moment. I was 15. I learned. I was learning jazz, and like a lot of jazz piano players, you just you, the way you start is you get this thing called the real book, which is a fake book, which just means it's a book that was made by some Berkeley guys, I think, in the 60s, and basically it's all these great American jazz standards. What's interesting is the way things are categorized is they're either swing or Latin, <laughs> and <laughs> I always thought that was weird. But I knew Tito Puente's music, and I was like, okay, cool. So that's Latin too, right? Now, Tito Puente is totally different than Joe Beam, and Tito Puente is a, you know, a Puerto Rican guy playing Cuban music from New York, so it's different from Cuban music. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, boy. And this was when I was in high school. I was like, A lot of genres really already f- mixing in your life already. Well, but yes, I also felt like I didn't understand what was going on. And mm-hmm. the people who were teaching me... Um, music had they had a background in swing in in American music and I got the sense that there was something not right and this whole category of Latin music felt really broad and and so uh, I started to um, just make it kind of a hobby to really learn about different um, different cultures of music and I'm, I find it fascinating that there are so many good musicians in the world and because of where they grew up and their background it's like everyone's at a slightly different frequency and when it comes together that's super interesting I remember when I first heard weather report you know in high school it was like hmm. whoa this this can be done and this was like the 70s a jazz band playing stadiums I was like what this is real life no way <laughs> so uh, anyway I, I went to college and I continued to study and I just I basically just kept a passion for for Latin music um, I loved Henry Mancini uh, oh, who, yeah. as a film composer he's kind of like when I was a kid, I always listened to him most. I felt like when I heard things like Peter Gunn or Days of Wine and Roses, I felt like I could write that kind of music. I mean, I know that's I, obviously I, he's a master, but I, it felt accessible to me. I like, love this. I, I love yeah. this. Mancini Henry, is, is such so an incredible genre-bending composer. I mean, he's probably one of the original old-school guys who had this amazing classical background who could also yeah. transform it into this new sort of popular-ish mm-hmm. idiom and, and create 
sound worlds that were very mm -hmm. exciting for TV shows and like Peter Gunn and others and Pink Panther yeah. and all that. So you are yeah. you're a very Mancini-esque uh, person, you know. Oh, I, I consider that the highest compliment. Thank you. Uh -huh. I mean, so that's my that's my hero, Henry Mancini, oh, and amazing. of course of course I like. Um, you know, John Williams and Alan Silvestri and these great film composers. But by the time I was working in film and TV as an orchestrator, um, you know, you mentioned I, I worked with Ben Folds and that was an amazing uh, project. Around 2015, I was quite bored with um, film composing in, in a certain way. I, I felt like, uh, I felt like the, generally speaking, not everybody, but generally I felt like Hollywood had hit a real rut. Like everything's kind of, kind of so, sort of sounded like a watered down action score from the Hans Zimmer camp. A lot of, a lot of, this was the kind of stuff I was being asked to write. I felt that, um, I just, I wasn't excited about the kind of music I was being asked to write. And I had a good friend uh, who I used to play in my band, Little Horse, Sergio Bellotti, who's a drummer, who introduced me to his friend, Aldo Maza, who's a uh, Montreal-based uh, drummer and percussion instructor who runs workshops in Cuba. So Aldo took me to Cuba in 2015 with his Cosa Music workshop, and it was an amazing experience. I was... Uh, it really opened my eyes to things that I, I didn't I didn't really understand. Rumba music, for example, traditional rumba music that is you know still quite alive and thriving in Cuba and celebrated in Cuba was not something I really understood. Um, you know, and and I kind of went there like an American with sort of a. Uh, it's like a game of telephone the way you learn about Latin music in the United States. I feel because you don't really get. I knew I had to go to Cuba because I really had a lot of confusion about how to arrange Cuban music and Latin, and understanding the different Latin music genres in general. And so I felt that it was it was necessary for my further education. But also, like I said, I was truly just uninterested in the kind of film score stuff I was being asked to write. Right. So I also went down there with a chart of Beethoven's Seventh that I was kind of working on as like a hobby arrangement. Uh, I wanted to do it in like a mambo style. And uh, I met some of the guys who played in timba bands. Now, uh, timba is kind of like modern salsa. I like to say that if salsa's the date, timba's the great sex afterwards. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like this incredibly Wait wonderful. A if salsa's yeah. the date, timba is the great sex afterward. Wow, yeah. that was a that's hot what I date. think. That was a hot. Yeah, it was a hot date. Wow. Exactly. Amazing, man. Yeah. I love that. That's a great analogy. I mean, so you know, I mean, timba, which is, of course, is a great timba scene in Miami, but yeah. um, it's just like you have everything. You have like timba. you have this musicianship that's at this high level, and it was like it was like a fire hose of culture and excitement. And um, that must be such an inspiring experience for you. It was an absolutely game-changing experience, not just for me understanding music, but for me realizing what kind of a bubble I lived in. And I was like, I, I, I felt empowered and humbled all at once because I was like, I got some work to do. I'm looking for the fabric, right? Which I describe as this thing that just connects us all. And I'm always trying to like, trying to reach that. for that. And, and you know, some people who are very religious look, you know, try to find it through religious music. And uh, some people, you know, just want to jam forever. And some people write. And I think, I think people who are interested in making music, they're looking for that thing that connects us all. And I guess the, bo the bottom line, I felt like I could get close closest to that fabric 
by doing this fusion project. So I was really excited. Wow. I worked on, like you mentioned, Beethoven and Havana. I worked on that for a year because I really didn't have any idea what I was doing when I started. I mean, I knew I, knew, I was re-educating myself in the difference between, you know, rumba music, Wawonko style in rumba and understanding and really like getting the tax, taxonomy of like Cuban genres together. Um, and, you know, there's still things I'm learning, of course. It's like, it, it's just so, it's so deep. And um, so it, it was kind of like a work project to figure out how to write in these styles. And at the time, I didn't have a band. So I, I, I had Aldo's book. I had other books about, you know, Cuban rhythms. So I just kind of like beat them on the piano, like in different parts of my, like my grand B piano is in my studio. So I would play like the kata rhythm from, from uh, the rumba, you know, ta ta on just like this little the half stick that comes down to put the halfway piano up and so, so i was like oh, okay piano so, as a percussion instrument to teach yourself yeah. these rhythms exactly that you learn down in cuba and you understand the feeling of them incredible incredible it, exactly so that's that's what i did and you know like I, I got some of the details wrong actually but one thing about that arrangement is it had like I think it was just kind of like that naive thing. Like yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I just kind of went for it. You just got to do it. it. And, um, I mean, the, the whole first record, you know, I, I, there are things where I'm like, oh man, I wish I could go change that. But you know, you just move forward and, yeah. and you just really want to keep going and, and make it better. So, um, but one thing that I appreciated at that time was, uh, I had done a little kind of like spoof video with a friend of mine called psycho on piano with knives. And I, I did a little like YouTube video where I played the psycho theme and used knives as a percussion instrument inside. Uh, and we did like a black and white film and it was like this cheeky spoof. Right. But one thing that happened with that is when I put that online, a lot of young pianists emailed me like, Hey man, can I get the sheet music to this? And I was like, cool. And, uh, so I realized that the, the, the kids who were, well, I, should, I should say kids, it was some adults, but it was a lot of young people asking for sheet music, I thought, you know what, if I did something that was like really challenging and people wanted to play on piano, then maybe they, there would be like some activity. So right. I said, okay. So it was like, that was like a little test for like, will this project get anywhere? So anyway, I, when I put Beethoven Havana online, it took me like a year to like, just do it while I was working on, you know, film and TV projects and stuff. And I kind of just kept hacking away at this thing. And finally I felt it was, it was good enough. I put it online and I bought a Facebook ad for the video. And so like within about two weeks, there was like a million views on oh Facebook and, and then like all, all this stuff. And it was very weird because it did, it, it did go viral. Um, and yeah, it I, did. I just, it, it got a lot of attention and there was a lot of people just requesting sheet music. So wow. that, that was great. Anyway, yeah. I, 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 was, so um, I was, just so I was I delighted. Recap, so, just to make sure yeah. I understand. You created Beethoven in Havana first by using yes. these new rhythms and things you had learned in Cuba. You mm -hmm. came home, practiced these different rhythms on your piano because you didn't have a band. You didn't have, you know, all the right. instruments. You learned, you self-taught yourself these rhythms and because and, you were just so fascinated by them. And then right. you applied them to these classical composers, one being Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. And then you put a $50 ad on Facebook and it went viral. That's That's to me, what I, <laughs> what I love about this story is it shows the power of creativity, intention, passion, and yeah. that if you just throw yourself into this thing, you never know what's going to come out. For example, you are a Hollywood film composer, arranger, right. whatever. You play jazz piano. You can 
sit in front of an orchestra, you, you, like I said at the beginning, you're a jack of all trades. But you took the initiative to have this idea, this creative idea, and make something special for it in your own voice, and it took off and it blew up. And that's, that's, that's the message I would hope anyone listening, any musicians listening, yeah. any up-and-coming musicians are listening to. Like, We don't have to be the composer of the next Steven Spielberg film to be successful. We don't have to be um, creating something that's just... So yeah. mind-blowing that it, it takes you up to a stratosphere. The work is day by day, piece by piece, slowly by slowly, learning, teaching, improving, and being passionate and intentional about it. And, and I think yeah. this is incredibly exciting for people to hear that you, you took this initiative, found a passion, applied it, just learned on the way, made it up as you went. Uh, I always call it fake it till you make it, right? Um, but yeah. you weren't faking yeah. it because you, you backed it up with all this knowledge and expertise. So really bravo, incredible. I, I do want to get to... How how that album made its way to the Kennedy Center and then how it made its way to New Deco. But before we do that, yeah. you know what would be really interesting is I would like to know, because it's a really hard thing to do, uh, and I have several friends out there in L.A. who, who are in the scene and, and making music for you know different media companies. How did you break into film and TV in the very first place? I, I knew nothing about the film scoring scene when I graduated college. I went to Skidmore College in upstate New York. I did a lot of independent studies, and I, I was learning mm. Pro Tools, which was Pro Tools version 3, uh, which is hilarious <laughs> to think about because now Pro Tools is like on beyond version 12 and like very sophisticated program. But in the last 20 years, so much has changed technology-wise. But I, uh, I started, you know, I made a studio in my dad's apartment basement in Boston, and it. Uh, it was... It was definitely humble beginnings. Uh, I remember, like, uh, you know, I had, I, I bought, like, I, I use, uh, you know, I, I ran like a, like a zero in interest credit card to get some gear and like, you know, I had, I'd like nothing like, but it was, it was, it was actually a kind of a beautiful time. You know, I had like a broken, broken minivan that like I could barely make the payments and, um, you know, I love but this. I, I it's like it's, it's it's really funny. Like I didn't think of myself as as broke, but I was broke. Of course, and and eventually I found my way. I got a production job uh, working at a jingle house in New York in 2003 with uh, a, a guy who's great guy. I'm still friends with named Rob Kahn, and he had his company RK Music, and he wrote music for promos and TV commercials. And he needed someone to run Pro Tools and take out the trash. And so that's what I got. I got the job there. And he was really nice. He sh showed me a lot about how to interact with clients, Ooh. how to be, be professional. Very important. Um, right. Put my foot in my mouth plenty of times and <laughs> learned when to talk and when not to talk. Very important skill for, for doing film and television. And in the meantime, I, I, I was uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my, my wife, but at the time, um, you know, we knew a lot of uh, young filmmakers in film schools, and she ended up going to Columbia Film School, and I started writing uh, music for the short films of some of her colleagues. I actually was writing short film music before she went there, but no one's counting. So wow. anyway. <laughs> Wait a second. So your wife yeah. is in the industry as well? Well, now she actually flips houses, <laughs> okay. but uh, at the time she was, she did film school and she, she made films and yeah, she was, she's a so great photographer and a filmmaker. Yeah. Through your relationship with her, your connection with her, that's how you got a little more into film and, yeah. and stuff, but you were already doing commercial work. So you took the commercial job, the jingle job, yeah. the trash job, building yeah. your way up. That was before yeah. her. 
Exactly. When I worked at RK Music, I was working as a Pro Tools assistant, and then from time to time, he would let me do a demo for like a, for like a, at the time it was promos for A and E and things like that. Wow. Um, and so I won a few of the jobs, and I was, of course, super excited, and then I got a taste of how to work commercially, and then I started writing music for short films, and then uh, some independent features eventually, and then I had a short, I wrote music for a short film that got into the Sundance Film Festival, and oh, this wow. was 2000, 2009, <clears throat> and uh, I went to the festival, and I met a great guy named Anton Sanko, who was the composer, ultimately, on the National Geographic um, program he wrote the music and he won the emmy for that and i was his orchestrator so Amazing. I, I and i i met him at sundance and i said you know what's up with this career like should i move to la and he was like you gotta move to la i used to live in new york you, there's nothing there for for you and i said uh -huh. okay and so i moved to la and then i looked him up and i said you told me to move here can you please give me a job <laughs> and uh wow and he did. He gave me, i love this yeah, he gave me my first uh he gave me my first orchestration job one thing i will say if if anybody's like wondering like how does this happen and i think a lot of things happen because i just asked and and, and i just asked mm. and people People, Don't be people are very, very open. You know, I've asked a lot of things of people that didn't work either. Like um, before I went to before I went to uh, L.A., I, I I had Sam Adler's orchestration book. Um, and he's it's a great orchestration book. I think it's like the best. Yeah. Yeah. Up to date, I studied up, that up to at Juilliard. Yeah. We looked at that at of, Juilliard a lot. Yeah. Right. And so I was living in New York. I was living up the street from Juilliard. And I was like, why don't I just write Sam Adler a letter and see if he'll take me as a student? And I wrote him a letter and he said, well, you know, you could come meet me and you could talk about Juilliard. Um, but why don't you also think about this Berlin thing? I, I met him at Juilliard. I was super intimidated. I had some some scores that were not that great, but I had written some like some program music, some classical stuff that like kind of vaguely sounded like low rent Strauss or something, you know, and I was like, well, would you look to look at my scores? And he said, look, you know, you obviously you're working in commercials. You kind of know what you're doing. You're not really in the track that's going to put you in Juilliard, but you might want to come to Berlin and do this six week program and study with me. And that was great because I grew up speaking German. So I knew I'd, Berlin would be fun. Anyway, oh, nice. so in 2000, so I just asked Sam Adler. I, I didn't really think anything of it, but I just wrote him a letter and he was extremely nice yeah. and he was a gr fantastic teacher as he's been to many, many composers. And I was grateful that I had a little time to work with him. Um, that. Don't be afraid to ask, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. You're not going to, one way to for sure not get something is to not ask. Right. That's you, the Wayne Gretzky quote. You miss 100% of the shots you never take. Exactly. You know, and, right. and I think that's really powerful that you that you had not only the intention to, to move to L.A., to ask, the, the, but there must have been, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit, there must have been like a deep, like seated, rooted, something in your core that said, I can do this. I'm not afraid to do it. I can write music. I can write jingles. I can write for Hollywood. I think I can do this. It's, I don't need so-and-so and so-and-so to tell me to move to somewhere or go somewhere. But I, something deep down inside of me is telling me I can do this. Was there a point in your life where you mm. knew for sure, like without any question at all, and I know we're jumping around a little bit, yeah. that you could not live without music, that you knew I'm going to be a musician. This is where it's going. There is no question at all. This is my trajectory. And then what is right. it that gave you that courage, that strength mm. of conviction, that grounding within yourself that you knew you're going to be fine pursuing this? What a great question. Well, when we talk about it right now, 
and, and, you know, me recounting the story, I can see why it sounds like I had a lot of courage. But the truth is, I was, I've, I've been quite scared, for, like, a lot of the time. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, still, I'm still scared a lot of the time. I think I finally got to the point where I just felt like if I was scared about something, it was probably a good idea. Because every time, every time I got, every time I, I got, you know, my butt kicked, I did feel like, it was, it was, there was real growth. Um, you know, a lot of people around me did encourage me. My parents were very open and encouraged me to do what I want to do. They bought me a four track machine when I was 16. <laughs> they, they saw that I was like recording. I still have those cassettes. I mean, they're dreadful, but they were part of the process. <laughs> you know, I, I guess when I was a kid, I just sang all the time. Yeah. And I think my mom had the sense that I really liked music. Mm. Uh, my mom is a huge opera fan. And so she brought a lot of music into the household. And, uh, you know, they were listening to the Met Opera all the time on Saturdays. Wow. There was lots of lots of music in the household. And she put me and my brother on piano. My brother was a was was older than five years older than me. And he loved playing piano. He played boogie woogie. I worshipped him. So I wanted to be just like him. <laughs> of course. And, Siblings. And then. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, I started like experimenting with other mu- uh, instruments in grade school. I was always just really into into music and into recording. I think um, I think when I kind of discovered, um, you know, maybe when I was fifteen, and when I when I was going to music camp, and and I was surrounded by people that yeah. liked music, yeah. I, I I went to. Uh, uh, when I was in eighth grade, I was a really, really lost kid. I was in the public school in my in Brookline, and it was a good public school, but I was completely lost. And my parents, like, I, my grades were horrible, and I, I, I didn't. I, they thought I was just going to like become a complete total failure. And they put me into uh, a school called Belmont Hill, which was in Boston. It's like a really strict boys' school. At the time, I think actually I played a piano piece I had written for the head of admissions. And I think that's like why they let me in because my grades were bad. And, you know, but he said, well, there's, you know, no one here is really taking music seriously. It's really just like hockey and, you know, academics. I had a I had an okay time at Belmont Hill. I was the only musician there. There were a couple moments when I felt like I was a joke because everyone kind of looked down at the arts. They thought, you know, sports were much more important. Um, not everyone thought that there, but it was not exactly a school with a great arts program in high school. So when I was able to go to a music camp, it was such a contrast. Oh, and, man, you must have uh, just like, yes, I'm on my Oh, yeah, I was like, this is who I want to be. And so wonderful. I made friends that I still have for my life. And also yeah. I just realized like music was something you could take seriously because no one, no one took it seriously in my life. It was like, that was just like a joke thing. Right. It's, 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 it's funny because so my 15. mother was, I was 15. Wow. So I think I, I think when I was 15, I started playing bass <laughs> and I was like, I played bass in the jazz band at music camp. And that was a game changer for me. And then after that, I took it very seriously. And I understood that there was a world out there where music was taken seriously. And, you know, it didn't matter that my high school didn't have an orchestra or a good music program. Wow. By the time I, I went to college, um, I was totally into music, and I'm, I'm I'm sure by the time I was I was 19, I wanted music to be a career. I thought I was going to be some kind of rock star or something like that because I was a, I was really really like a really cocky kid in when I was that age. Um, oh my gosh, but, that's you're speaking yeah. my language. I was so out of control, cocky, 16, 17, 18. Like yeah. I, could do I want, I thought I could play anything on the tuba. I was like, don't even get yeah. in the way. I'll play a violin concerto, whatever. You know, I can do it. Wow. And yeah. You need that though, right? You need that sort of. 
that's what I was asking about. Like, what was yeah. it inside of you that drove you? It's like, you have to have this uncompromising confidence in yourself that I think when you're yeah. that age just comes naturally, you know, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like I, I can, I can, you know, for me, I was 15, 16 years old going to interlocking and having one of the conductors there oh. who was like a famous yeah. conductor say, wow, you sound so great on the tuba. Mm-hmm. That was all I needed to say to myself. Well, wow. great. I'm going to go to Juilliard. You know, and did that you, was, li- did you like interlocking? You know? that, that, that's amazing. Did you like interlocking? I was always curious about it. I heard it was oh, always like I loved it. A, a, it was it was yeah. it was my it was my summer camp that you're talking about. It was it was basically yeah. a place where I got to be around other like minded young people like myself who loved mm-hmm. music, who knew classical music, who loved the orchestra, who loved to play all these great. I was a I was in hog heaven. It, it completely yeah. transformed my life, put me on a new direction. I would not have gone wow. to Juilliard had I not gone to interlocking. I would have not gone on to right. play in the New York Philharmonic by the age of 20. I wouldn't have done these things if I hadn't had that structure and that just incredible inspiration around me from other people my age. It's one thing to be inspired by someone older than you and someone who's mm-hmm. actually doing it, but it's like an untouchable thing. But to have another yeah. 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old person I'm playing an orchestra with sound incredible, and they're off to Juilliard the next year because they already got in. That's very inspiring. So I was very blessed to be in that kind of environment. And it sounds to me wow. like this, this, this summer camp like kind of catapulted you to the, to the next right. level. And there's something you said that I think it, it's, it could be the title of this podcast, From Pro Tools Assistant to Hollywood. You know, I, I just <laughs> I love that you started like on, on, the, on the totem pole very low and then you worked your way up. It's kind of like the MO of all great artists, right? You have to start somewhere. You have to like yeah. kind of just chew your teeth on something and, and, and get in there. So um, I would love yeah. to talk a little bit more about the music and the collaboration we've had together because I think uh, yeah. What, what, yeah. what's going to be really awesome is for people to discover the video that we already have up, Lacrimosa. I think it'd be great to also play some music for audiences. So we're going to um, switch gears a little bit and play some music for you. Have uh, our audiences hear a little bit of that performance. Kennedy Center, and we did this concert, Beethoven Havana. I was floored. You and I got along great. We were like two peas in a pod. I felt so like it was fun. like just a great, your great energy. Yeah. And I introduced you to Sam. Uh, can I tell you now how director of New Deco? Yeah. yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but I, can I tell you how nervous I was for that performance? This I was. Is, you you said this already once that you were scared, and you're still scared. Like you 
are killing it. Like it's so surprising to me that you <laughs> even mention that this is this is the thing people don't know. This is this is the unfiltered yeah. content that I'm like so excited yeah. to share with the world. Is like, yeah. you're you're freaking G man. You're killing it. You play incredibly. You're writing all this Thanks, beautiful man. music. You're writing for Netflix and Disney, and you're at the top of the top of the top. Yet you said you're scared. Like, what the what? what? <laughs> I, I hadn't, that was, a, I'd never played the Kennedy Center. I mean, it was 2,300 people in that audience. I'd never done anything like that. that and of great. course, I I got that because Ben was so kind and said, you know, you should just just do Beethoven Nirvana with the orchestra. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, it wasn't the first time I played with an orchestra, but, yeah. you know, um, it was, it was like, it was all new. And before the performance, I was, I remember I was kind of pacing backstage and, uh, and I was, I remember like just thinking that for like, like three hours before the performance, I remember just like, I was like, I have got to just get Zen. And I was like doing breathing exercises for like three hours. I was truly, truly nervous. And I was like, Aww. and I, I remember thinking, and this is like a performance thing for me. It's like, all I got to do is get the first two bars right. Uh, <laughs> That's like, just a like, bar, two bars. Yeah, yeah. And so, but but it's, it's interesting because like. Like uh, for me, like that's the thing. Like once you break the back on a piece and you start right, like it all kind of works after that if you know it. Because because like once yeah. that 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 to me like gets through, it's like getting the froth off the beer. Let's give you know? some context to our listeners. You and I yeah. performed with the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center, Beethoven in Havana, right. and I believe right. it was the first fully orchestrated version of this that you did with an orchestra as well. Uh-huh. It was well. Actually, I had done a few performances with an orchestra in Italy, but this was the first version in the U.S. with with an orchestra of this size right. and this caliber. And for sure, we had challenges with that. Mm-hmm. We had challenges with the size. We had challenges yeah. with you know just the Latin percussion and the and the Cuban percussion. Right. Um, exactly. And that is sort of the that's something that is tricky with big orchestras. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I am honored and grateful that I was your conductor to get the because even for me, as much as I know. Latin styles and percussion styles. If the musicians yeah. aren't versed in it, it's just going to be a little bit of a slog. And we did have some troubles right. getting that thing together, but like the performance yeah. was sensational, and that that led to us just really bonding and collaborating. Like we went through the fire together. I always talk about like the musicians of New Deco. It's like we have this guitarist Aaron Libos, who's uh-huh. never ever worked with an orchestra until New Deco. Never really knew. Right terms of conductors and ensemble playing in that kind of a way and Mm -hmm. he wouldn't even look at me he's like dude i can't i can't even like watch you man i just gotta like focus and play and i'm like yeah but if you don't watch me conduct you're not gonna know exactly what kind of beat (laughs) i'm giving for this he's like i just can't do it but you know concert after concert after concert after concert of us getting together and working and working through it i will go to the gates of hell with this guy. I will go through any hard new music, contemporary, crazy, wild piece with him because now we've gone through it so many times, we know how to Mm -hmm. get each other's backs and watch out for each other's backs. And now he's composing for the ensemble as well. So I I find it fitting that like this first performance, this big performance is on one of the biggest stages ever. (laughs) And you were sitting on stage as nervous as you were, but then you played so beautifully. but you made me feel very comfortable, man. I gotta say, you, I was so grateful. I was like, this is a great conductor because you had the orchestra under control and you you really made me feel like everything was gonna be fine. So that's a, it's a big reason why it was a success. And I'm so glad we got to be friends for that well, day. Thank you very much. Yeah, man, that was that was a great, it was a great honor. And it, and, it, and I knew right away that we had to do something in Miami. So let's let's talk about uh, Miami. Yeah, let's talk about it. composer. We're a genre-bending <laughs> orchestra. You already had these great charts. You already had this great um, music. You came to Miami. 
First of all, I know that I was the one that probably pitched you on New Deco and told you all about New Deco. So I, I know that like maybe you, you knew about it through me, but what was it that excited you about getting the opportunity to work with a Miami-based ensemble, knowing the Cuban context, knowing the mm-hmm. history of Cuban music? And then what was the most rewarding part about it for you? First of all, you, you said to me, I think, uh, come on down to Miami. The orchestra's like a Ferrari. And I was like, <laughs> all right, let's go. So, um, I would say something I, like that. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And, and I, I was so honored that you asked me to come, and I, I considered it a, a really great opportunity. I love... I care so much about this project. I mean, I, I really live for Via Havana, and I, I, I love my film and TV projects, but Via Havana is is just like my baby, mm-hmm. right? So so the fact that you cared and, and you you could see that I, what I was trying to do, it just meant so much. So I was like, this is going to be amazing. And you invited me for four days, and I actually had scheduled a performance in Cuba the day before. I don't know if you recall, but I played with the Cuban National Orchestra um, in a festival in Cuba and then flew over over from Havana to Miami that day. So I had a chance to try uh, the Beethoven Havana chart and some others with a bigger group. And Mm. one thing about this music is we realized, and we've discussed this, is you kind of need a smaller, medium-sized orchestra. If you do it with a big orchestra, right. one of the pro- the problems is is just the physics of yeah. the sound, you know, moving swiftly in the, with the percussion, really challenging. So I didn't really get that until I started moving into the project. So um, when we we did uh, the Miami group with New Deco, it was so nice because the ensemble was small and everyone could be really nimble. It was amazing when I showed up, like everyone knew my charts and like the first rehearsal, like everyone had it. I was like, wow. So super impressive. You were right. Everything moves quick. It's organized. Uh, It was in a great um, neighborhood in Miami. Like everything's happening. And I was like, it was like that week was like a dream. And you guys were so kind. I mean, that was just a great time. And it was really the first time I played four nights in a row with the material. And so it was it was great to just kind of like be on my on my game. Um, it really, that really changed the project forever for me, man, because I, I was, I felt, uh, I felt obviously more comfortable. I understood things about how to do the arrangements details, you know, human music has to fit together like gears in a clock, right? Yeah. It, it, like, like the, the, all the percussion has to just really, really work. And, um, you know that's 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 a, that's the beautiful thing about studying Cuban music when you when you get it right everything works like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm mm-hmm. of course trying to do this classical context, so I'm putting I'm putting muck in the gears um, <laughs> almost necessarily. So it's really important to try to be able to figure out how to bring clarity to the arrangement. So ensemble size was definitely something we had to organize, and you were very smart to have a small ensemble when we perform this stuff. And it was really fun to meet uh, Miami Cubans, and like I was, I was, I'm always nervous because you know, you know, I'm not Cuban, but I, I love the music, and I, I, I want to be very careful to make sure that people know I'm always, I always consider myself a guest yeah. <laughs> in the world of Cuban music. Yeah, and it, you don't want to be like a, known as a cultural appropriator or something like that. You're, you're actually authentically right. learning and and combining and and just have a creative right. voice that you want to share. Exactly. And that, that is something that comes up from time to time. People are like, what's this guy up to? And I'm like, look, <laughs> hey, I, I'm just, I'm, I love it. That's all I'm going to say. And so I just try to lead with love and say, look, this is, this is, you know, this is where I'm coming from. One thing I, I always talk about, and I think we talked about a little bit in the, in the shows, is I'm really interested in the fact that in Cuba and other uh, Caribbean countries, there's that 
Afro history of religion and culture. So they, and their music reflects that. So the mm. dancing and the improvisation on low drums, for example, in Cuba, that comes from uh, Yoruba traditions that became the Santeria religion and culture, right? <laughs> and in Europe, the classical music, which came from the Christian background, everyone's looking up in heaven for God. And so the, the music is high melodies, harmonies supporting high melodies. You know, mm. think of when we think about the hallelujah chorus, the piece just keeps mm. going up and up and up trying to get to God, right? Mm. But in, in Cuba, it's down on the ground and reaching to the ocean. And so you have this different mentality when you bring wow. these mu- two, two styles together. I find that really interesting because... You know, when you when whenever you're doing art, whether it's comedy or painting, you're looking for contrast, right? Because the contrast is what makes it interesting, throws us off our our, our game. So I like that in this so project, cool. you have you kind of have the ultimate contrast tools. You can like you can mix what is what is this great like dance music and feels uh, it, 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 from a totally different cultural perspective and classical music, you know, which or romantic music or just let's say European art music in general. It, it is it is you know typically music for listening and sitting and thinking and there's an intellectual component. Um, of course, there's an intellectual component in Cuban music too. But generally speaking, you have the music is from really, really different cultural backgrounds, and that contrast for me is kind of what I'm always trying to, uh, I suppose, manipulate to get good results. Incredible! I love the way you're describing this. How you know Western music that was influenced by Christianity was looking up, 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 and how the Cuban yeah. music was rooted in like this earthiness, this sort of like right. guttural, like this is coming from some deeper, maybe even pagan place within our souls to to create. Mm-hmm. And I love that. But you decided to meet them in the middle. You brought the heavens back down to earth, and you brought the earth up to the heavens. Yeah. And you yeah. you did uh, you you mixed the composers of Mozart. You did Beethoven, yeah. Saint-Saëns. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was the? What else? You did. Um, I, I think we did a little Bach as well. Bach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those four, right? Yeah, I think that's what we did there. Yep. Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, and uh, Saint-Saëns. Right. The Rubicabra. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so great! I want to make sure we play a little bit of that for everyone today too. Um, maybe we can go to that right now. Let's listen to a little bit of the Macabre. It's so awesome. you guys enjoyed that it was amazing <laughs> music um how did it start was it the cuban music first or was it the classical music and then combining it what, what was the sort of process of of that mm-hmm. compositional aspect um well uh it's a it's a bit of an illumination process like i've tried i have lots of arrangements my com- my computer hard uh, my hardware uh, hard drive is like full of half finished arrangements <laughs> uh, there's so many 
Yeah, yeah. There's so many Rachmaninoff pieces that have died on the vine while trying to turn them into Cuban arrangements. Um, I, I think I'll get there eventually. The Beethoven Havana was a prototype for the project. Uh, I, you know, the the harmonic content is simple enough that it can feel almost like a Cuban folk song, which is often just three chords, right? Yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. So it's simple. You know, it's basically a theme in variations. So it's really uh, repetitive in a certain in a certain way. It's repetitive enough that um, I think that's kind of what makes that a hit actually and you know why it's been used in movies so much because it's pretty accessible you know it's a little like Ravel's Bolero because <laughs> it's like it's very it, people hear it and it's just a catchy tune yeah. that people won't yes. forget so I felt like that's kind of kind of you know that ultimately folk songs are like that too they're just a catchy tune that aren't even written down for generations right so if you have that aspect in the classical music it's helpful because I feel like it'll feel a little bit more natural so something like danse macabre um you know it is a little bit more of a different kind of composition so the arrangement became something different um but let's take a composer like stravinsky right of spring that's hard to adapt in my pro in this project without um potentially disturbing the Got spirit it. of the original thing because it, it, it like Stravinsky already did this to his own music right, right. like it's rhythmic it's yeah. colorful the orchestration is stretched I mean right of springs a hundred years old right. it still feels cutting edge oh, right yeah so he used Afro Cuban so, he used Cuban he used not Afro Cuban he used yeah, African yeah. rhythms drumming and all kinds of stuff in that piece Exactly. So there's there's nothing for me to really add by adapting, like, let's say, the Rite of Spring. There are some other Stravinsky pieces that could certainly be adapted. I've been playing with uh, Petrushka, and I'm not sure if I have it yet, but that, that might end up on a record. Um, and also, it gives, it gives me a chance to just really, like, relearn a lot of this music. Um, you know, uh, uh, right now I'm working on, um, there's a Mendelssohn piece. Uh, that I'm I'm adapting. I work with a violinist named Charlie Seam, who's become a good friend. He and I did something on the first record. We did Scheherazade and Cape Verde, and he he uh, he and I uh, recorded that in, so this in is New like York a theme together. In your life, you're you're combining different styles together to create something new and fresh. And and this is seems yeah. like it's a. Do you carry this kind of compositional process to all your other work, like for Netflix and oh. Disney and National Geographic, or are you kind of coming into each project that you get hired for? Okay, they want this, this, and this, I'm just going to be this? Or do you find ways, and I guess this is sort of a bigger, broader question, yeah. do you find ways to still be authentic to yourself artistically in this genre-bending styles, combining, even when you get yeah. hired to do a more commercial situation? I think when I started out, I was very concerned with this whole idea of like trying to find my voice mm. and, and, st and staying true to myself. And I realized that that, um, that can really get in the way, actually, because uh, the reality is, I think if you're a composer and and you're gonna, you will always be yourself. Like you, you even if you think of yourself as diverse, you're probably not. You don't hear it, but I think most people who compose music have a style that's sort of inescapable. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, there's ob obviously it's when you write music for film and TV, you really got to listen to the director and, and producers and know what they're going for. Hopefully you, you are a good hire in the sense that they, they, they asked you to do it because they get what you do. Mm. Um, and when, and then you, you know, you, it's a good, it's a good fit, like right. being cast, they cast in a role, like an actor. And mm -hmm. you know, they know that what they're getting with you is going to be X, Y, Z. And then therefore it should be a symbiotic. Yeah. yeah. 
but at the end of the day, I mean, the quality the quality of the music you do really does depend on having a director who knows knows what they're doing or a producer. Um, you know, you got to if if they understand what they're trying to say and they can articulate it to you, that's good. It helps if obviously they understand a little bit about music, but it's not always necessary. It's more important that they understand storytelling. And your job as a composer for film and TV is really like you have to be a, uh, like a English to music translator or a story to music translator. You really have to understand what they're trying to do. It's pretty rare that they're going to say, you know, we really want a D minor seven flat five. And, you know, here, like, like no one says that. And no one, and also no one really says we want you to do something groundbreaking. Like that has never happened to me. No one said to me, it's time to do something really groundbreaking. I mean, I hear that that happens, but I, I think that's rare. And, you know, I think most of the time it's like, uh, you know, this is what we want and you have, you have to be the musical expert and, and they, you have to provide them with good, um, solutions for, and, and you want to make their film obviously more vivid and, and help tell their story. But, um, you know, one of the things you eventually figure out is you, you have to sit in the sweet spot between supporting the story and, you know, not cowering in the corner like a shy little boy you know music has to really just lift the film up john williams is known for his amazing melodies and uh you know when you hear about him hear him talk one thing he always says is actually melody is his third priority in writing for film the first thing the first priority is the rhythm and finding the right rhythm and uh, of the film and the second priority is the tessaratura which is basically the range you got to make sure that you're, the range of the music, like if you're writing for flutes, but there's a lot of dialogue or sound effects that are also in a high range, you might have some problems. Um, and then the third thing is to great have a good melody. That's, so that's, the guy, that's, that's really incredible insight, actually. I always thought that was really interesting. So the guy who writes the most memorable melodies for film and TV, that's his third priority. Well, so it makes it just sense tells you something he's like, the craft. he's... he's yeah coming to the conclusion that he can't write a great melody unless he has these other two aspects really well down. So, it, Correct. It, you know, yeah. in, in a way it makes sense. It's like, it's like your historical context on the melody. It's your, it's your fundamental. If you're going to write a great melody, it's not like, okay, what does Superman sound like? What does E.T. sound like? No, it's like there's so much more at play to the heartbeat of the film that's going exactly. to inform how my melody comes out. And that brings me to actually, I think, yeah. you know, another question that I'd love to ask you about the pressure of the industry you're in. You know, mm. there's, uh, it, it seems to me that there's uh, a lot of pressure in the film world and the TV world, deadlines, actors, I mean, a lot mm. of money at stake, a lot of... Yeah, uh, jockeying for position, uh, you know, got to hit your numbers, mm-hmm. got to get your subscribers up, you know, these big companies. And, you know, you think of like a Disney, which is probably what one of the biggest media companies in the world, yeah. if not the biggest. So mm-hmm. I guess. Do you I mean, and, and you alluded to like if a director hires you, hopefully they've done their homework and they're hiring you because yeah. you're bringing in a certain flavor to to the process that they already like and and they know that they're yeah. going to get xyz from you what are some of those things that you that you can tell an aspiring composer conductor or someone who's in that industry like how would you deal with that or what what are some of the things you do to deal with that that's a Everything great there. question <laughs> yeah yeah there is absolutely pressure and it's it's not some guy in a suit with a cigar standing over your shoulder wagging his finger at you it's a much much more of a systemic pressure um, and it, you know it's more like um, 
it's first of all, everyone I work for at Disney, and I, I say this fully honestly, is very professional and very nice. Not everyone I've ever worked with is professional and nice, but I feel very lucky that uh, I, I work with a group called Disney Television Animation, and they're really great. And the Houghton brothers who run Big City Greens are wonderfully kind. They have good morale throughout their crew. Now, so that's a good framing for me to say, with all that all that professionalism, there's still enormous pressure because we have huge deadlines. There's just a tremendous amount of pressure to get things done on time. Um, you have to be religious about your deadlines in film and television. You cannot, you cannot be flaky about that stuff. Um, you know, it's like a joke that in, uh, in the record making world, if like, if the recording session starts at nine o'clock, everyone shows up at like 11, <laughs> but if it's a film scoring session, everyone's there at quarter of nine and the downbeat is at nine o'clock. Yeah. And I think that's a great uh, analogy for the, the culture around film. You have to be very punctual. You have to be very much on time. You have to just be like super professional on every level. And what that really means is not only do you have to be on time and all the things like that, but it also means that you have to be a, you have to be a solution finder. And you really have to see that when people come, come to you for music, they're asking for a service essentially for their, their film. You're like, you know, so sometimes you're like the waiter, you know, and you got to bring the soup on time. And if it's not hot enough, then you got to say, no problem. We'll take care of it. You know? And, uh, also, like a waiter, if one thing goes wrong, it's really hard to get them to trust you again. Um, uh, so, so there's enormous pressure. That's a lot I, of pressure because you feel like yeah. you can't fail the first time. You don't even have a room to, you know, because then mm -hmm. they'll blacklist you on on some level. What do you? I mean, yeah, what are some of the true. things you do to 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 manage that? To manage the stress of of the work and having to always be creative and then also be a good father and, you know, mm. family man. And like, what are, what are some things do you, do you have anything that you do to unwind or that, that, yeah. Was there any triggers that pop up for you that you say, okay, I'm feeling a lot of pressure right now to get this right or do this in a certain way. Right. I get there. I've done it before. I, I, I have a process and I'm just going to like, are there things like that that help you de-stress, manage stress, stay mm -hmm. grounded, stay focused without allowing. Yeah the hoopla around Hollywood and the pressures that yeah. come with the industry to, to stunt your creativity? Well, it's a gr another great question. And it's funny, we're, we're talking now the day after uh, Thanksgiving week. And before Thanksgiving, I was completely burnt out. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had to take a few days off. I, I was like a bear during this last week. I just had to sleep the whole time. Um, this year is challenging for everybody, obviously, because of the pandemic and the quarantines. Um, I'm homeschooling my kids this year. Uh, long story short is they, they needed... They're, they're, aside from the fact that it's remote learning, um, their educational circumstances were not ideal. So we, my wife and I decided to homeschool. We partnered with a neighbor to do it. Oh, and wow. uh, I... I'm teaching music and science, you know, nine hours a week. We're all oh taking God. turns and that's a lot. But, to, but what I didn't expect was that aspect of my life right now was really, really enjoyable because I'm learning about my kids and I'm learning about myself. I'm learning to be much more patient. Obviously I'm learning how much teachers go through, uh, you know, and I think one thing I've come to realize is, um, you know, as much pressure as this is in this business, I really try to take it, take a deep breath, and um, it's not a, it's not a big deal. It's just movie making. Mm -hmm. 
it's just music. Yes. Um, yes. There's some real real problems in the world, and it ultimately yes. it's a it's a privilege. It doesn't mean the pressure doesn't feel intense, but um, I try to take care of myself physically, obviously, and uh, zoom out. You zoom out a bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm feeling this intense pressure. Let me zoom out and back out. I have a beautiful family. I have a great career. I got my talents. I got my wits about me. Healthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, if I if I need to take the, there are times when I'm working and I I have a deadline and uh, I I instead of finishing that night, I go to sleep early and I wake up at three in the morning if it's necessary Mm. because at least I will have gotten some sleep. And um, wow, obviously that can you know. Fortunately, I work from home, uh, and then also one of the challenges is I work from home. So <laughs> you got to be. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's a real challenge. Wow. But I think at the end of the day, to answer your question as succinctly as possible, um, trying to keep a perspective and and just remember that uh, there are bigger problems in the universe. And to, like you said, zoom out. I think that's really, really just to take a deep Amazing. breath. Aside from all the, the lifestyle things like, you know, good health and nutrition, yeah. which I try. Yeah, <laughs> but, it's hard, man. Yeah, Sleeping. It's hard. I meditate a lot. I do a lot of exercise. I was doing yoga yeah. for a while until I hurt my arm. I have to rest yeah. that a little bit. But I, it's oh, that's well, yeah. probably one of the biggest <clears throat> things that I, I, I want to dive into with a lot of the people who come on the show is what do you do to stay grounded? How do you keep yourself sane? We are creatives. We are artists. I'm really good at big picture. I have an idea and I, I have a goal or I have a dream and it's, it's there and it's pretty well refined and I think it could be something people like and I tell it to people and they support it and then we start moving forward. I think it's really yeah. beautiful, actually. I, you say you're teaching science to your kids. What? That's you're writing movie. You're writing music for movies, but you're yeah. also it's like you're a pioneering man back a hundred years ago teaching your kids homeschool. That's that's <laughs> got to be an unbelievable amount of work and pressure on you. It's kind of fun. Um, I, I I it was necessary. I I do like to say that problems are always opportunities. You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, a couple of times I've been fired off off jobs and every time that happened, uh, you know, it was amazing uh, what happened right. next. Um, you, frankly, uh, you know, I did this. I did a, a Netflix show that um, after the first five episodes, they, they did fire me because the, the, the show was going in a different direction from the demo and I wasn't able to pivot like they wanted. And it was very distressing. But right after that, that's when I released Beethoven and Havana. So if that hadn't happened, I don't know if I would have made the time in my life mm. to do the Via Havana project. Yeah. And I do think about that when bad things happen, because I'm just like, you know what, it's just an opportunity for, for something new. And you don't always see it. And that doesn't make it, you know, bad things happen. And it sucks. You know, even when someone passes away, you don't want to be cynical, but there is something that happens. Maybe you get closer with your the rest of your family because you bonded, you know, so uh, I, I try, this is what helps me, uh, moving forward. And, um, you know, uh, so, you know, oh. I get to meet great people such as yourself in what I do. And so there's always these opportunities, uh, that are ahead that I didn't expect. There's a lot of wisdom in your words right now. It's, it's, uh, I think as an artist, as a creative, we're going to get a lot more rejections than acceptances. Um, I always tell the yeah. story about like, <clears throat> as a tuba player, I auditioned uh, for about 20, 25 different orchestras in terms of getting the principal tuba spot in that orchestra. And this was at the wow. heyday of my playing. And I got basically 
relatively nowhere. I mean, at least in the States, mm. I didn't get out of any auditions. I got pretty close and far, actually, a couple European auditions. But, you know, once I closed the door on the performing career and opened up the door on the conducting career, which was really, truly, in my heart of hearts, deep down, something I'd wanted to do since high school, yeah. you know, once I got all these doors shut in my face, you're not good enough to be in this orchestra. You're not good enough to even get out of the first round of this audition. You know, it's, it's you know, after enough no's, I turned all those no's into this new opportunity. And my first audition I took as a conductor, I was runner up and the second, third and fourth one, I won them all. So I was like, okay, wow. I think I picked the right thing here. You know, yeah. I, I think I've made yeah. the right decision. So in that aspect, what I'd love to pivot to now is Who's the most inspiring artist that you that you follow, or maybe one of them that you are really into right now? It's one of the more inspiring artists. Hmm. Well, I think I got to mention Ben Folds first because I was a huge fan of his uh, when I first heard his records when I was like nineteen or twenty, and the fact that I got to work with him to help him orchestrate his piano concerto uh, right before I went to Cuba that was. Um, that was a big deal. In fact, I, I think it's, it, I should say that seeing the way he worked and seeing uh, what was possible in, with him, um, that probably gave me the confidence to just like really do my own thing and ha have the stones to go to Cuba. Mm. You know, we didn't really talk about it like that, but, but that was in 2014 when I was working with him. And um, he was, aside from the fact that he's a great guy and a, and a great musician, he he made me feel like anything was possible. I mm. mean, he's just, you know, he he's he was a real inspiration. I love his music. I love his songwriting. I love the way he can tell a story. Like, you know, when he writes lyrics, it sounds like a casual conversation, but it's actually <laughs> a profound statement about life and the meaning yeah. of your life. Yeah. And um, so he has it. He's he, good at he that. Really, he's good at that. And his knack for songwriting is really yeah, really good. Special. And, and uh, talk about someone who gets at the fabric. Um, so I, I would that say that the fabric, that's a, that's something I want to like apply to my life. I want to get to the fabric of the situation, this musical moment, you know? Right, right, right. So he, he does that. And that's, and I, I, I was really inspired by him when I, when I worked. How did him. you guys, how did you connect on that? How did you end up getting to that project? A friend of mine who was a composer uh, recommended me to his agent because uh, because we, uh, because the guy was looking for an orchestrator based mm -hmm. in LA cause he was spending his time between Nashville and LA and he needed someone to meet him. Um, and we hit it off. I brought my computer over his apartment in Santa Monica and he, you know, he would just basically, uh, he would place, play a few bars and say, okay, well let's assign this to the woodwinds and so forth. And then he would, uh, you know, come back and, and, uh, you know, ask me to do it. I, I think one time I remember we were working and he was like live tweeting the sing off while we were like working on the project. And he would be like, he'd be like, all right, I'm going to play a few bars. We had a deadline. So it was like, I'm going to play a few bars and, uh, let's write this, let's write this out for strings and you show it to me. And then I got to send some tweets. <laughs> and so he'd like, he'd like walk out of the room and like do the live Twitter wow, thing. And so I was like writing the concerto, helping him orchestrate the concerto while he's live tweeting for the sing off. Yeah. That's a very was, Foldsian yeah. moment. It was a good time. I and mean, we were having good laughs during that moment. So wow. I, I, it was great. And he was like super nice. And eventually we finished it uh, in Nashville. We basically sat on the floor and, and finished the thing uh, at his studio um, for like three weeks. I was very grateful for that opportunity, for sure. So ben, Ben's right up there as one, as one of the big, um, big heroes for me, for sure. You're at a stage you are now. 
you had a certain level of knowledge expertise when you were in college and when you were starting. What changes, or maybe it's personal and musical, that have happened in the last, let's say, 10, 15 years that took you from a particular sound that you had to your sound now? Or do you feel like you have a sound? Are you, are you kind mm. of like able to just float in all kinds of genres and styles? Or do you feel like there's been a growth, a trajectory, something that has changed in you from... 10, 15 years ago when you were really getting started and and putting yourself out there to now Mm -hmm. Hollywood composer established working with the best of the best. Yeah. um, Well, uh, I was very concerned with like, what is my voice? You know, early on in the, in the thing. Uh, I, I, I think when I started to just not worry about that so much and just shut up and write and that things started to happen and, Mm. uh, I think you just got to do it. And if it's not great, just put it in the drawer and don't worry and just, and just move on. I mean, I, I do cringe at some of my earlier work, but then I, you know, I just, I just, I, that's because I've, I've grown and um, that's, it's good that you do that. I think because it means you're growing. So just, just move on. And, uh, I think that's really what it's, I really try not to worry about like, um, trying to cultivate my own sound. I think it happens no matter what, if you're just working, because ultimately you're going to find things that you do that work. And I think when people, I, my friends tell me, it's like, Oh man, yeah, I heard that, heard that big city greens episode. I could tell, I could, I could tell it was you. And I'm like, Oh, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. Can, can you tell me? What you, like, I, I really don't know. I think it's one of those things like, like uh, when you hear your own voice on a recording, you're like, why do I talk so high? I didn't think, you know, oh, I was like, you don't know, yeah. you know? <laughs> so uh, I don't know what to say. I think I just try not to sweat it. Um, sometimes just you, do it. It's basically what you're basically just saying do it. is just get out there and do it. Write the music. Don't look back. Just go make it happen. Boom. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, uh, even though it's embarrassing to like make mistakes or do things badly, um, honestly, like people don't care about that nearly as much as you do. Like you you don't, it's hard to remember when other people were embarrassed. You know what I mean? Like, like all those times we have in our youth where like, Ooh, yeah, that was really embarrassing. I shouldn't have done that. Like nobody else remembers that except for you. So does, does it really matter? Right. Right. So amazing. Amazing. Just go on and do it. Exactly. So. You just gotta, just gotta do it. You know, one of the great quotes that Michael it. Tilson Thomas says about conducting yeah. when asked, Hey, how do you become a conductor? Or what, what do you need to do to become a conductor? He says, just don't give up. Just don't yeah. give up. You're not going to make it. You're not going to survive. If you give up, that is a hundred percent for sure. Guarantee you give up, right? You won't have the career. You don't give up. You're giving yourself the chance. I think it's exactly. really cool. And before we leave everybody today, maybe you could leave us with some more pearls of wisdom, piece of advice for a composer out there, a young composer out there, a young musician out there that you could share and or what was some of the best advice given to you? We touched on a lot of things. And I, I think a lot of things you said about being per, having perseverance and not giving up. The one thing I will say is uh, when I was young and I was looking up to other people for advice, I would hang on their every word. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's a good way to end this podcast by saying, take everything that you hear, especially what I say with a grain of salt. You can't duplicate someone else's road and just, just take, take some, everyone's advice with a grain of salt. At the end of the day, um, you have to really be like the CEO of your own tra- career, right? So mm. you, you, you just gotta, you gotta, you know, really do it your own Love way. That. And, and just, I would say, take everything with a grain of salt, but, but listen carefully, you know, Henry Mancini, we'll get back to him in his book, um, 
Sounds and I think it's called Sounds and Scores or Scores and Sounds. It's an old orchestration book that I think is out of print. He opens the 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 thing with a few paragraphs, and one thing he says is, when you're directing your your film orchestra, he had the perspective of being a conductor composer. So when you're in front of the group, you want to, uh, and if they have any input about your chart, listen to what they have to say, but remember that you are in charge. And I thought that was really great advice from from because it really says, don't be so cocky that no one else can give you input. But at the same time, you have to remember that it, it really is your project. And they and as you know, from being a conductor, Giacomo, you know, they want to see somebody in charge. It's important that they, they, they rec- that, that you're you know what you're doing and you have leadership. But at the same time, if you're just uh, a blockhead, not not absorbing any input, then you will not be successful, and that will start to, to turn people off. So I guess finding that balance somewhere in there, let's just call it the Mancini way, is is kind of what I'm I'm after, and I think that's good advice for living in music and other things as well. Amazing, man! Wow, that's a perfect cap to this podcast. That's amazing, man! Thank you so much. Joachim, what a great honor and pleasure to have you. Thank you for being a guest on New Deco's podcast, Unfiltered. Always great talking to you. Always great performing with you. Um, We're going to leave our listeners with a little bit of your music on the way out here. But uh, I just want to say you're an inspiring guy. And you know what I love about your overall career, your overall arc, is that if you work your tail off and you're open to learning and you're open to growing and you're open to opportunities where they come and not taking the firings and the, and the rejections as anything other than a future opportunity on its way, that you can have a very exciting, wonderful, beautiful, rounded, well-rounded career like you. You're, you're involved in so many different things from the performing, recording, and filmmaking aspect that I think it's a very inspiring you're a very inspiring artist you're a 21st century musician through and through and uh, just glad to know you and glad to be a collaborator with you and I can't wait to get back and and work with you again in in an orchestra setting and perform concerts for as many people as we can so thank you so much thank you so much this is such a pleasure talking to you man thank you so much everybody we really hope you are enjoying these conversations these unfiltered conversations with some very special people as always we're going to leave you with some music on the way out the door and i would love to ask you guys a little favor if you guys are enjoying these conversations please subscribe to our podcast or subscribe to wherever you're listening to it that would be wonderful share it with friends or like-minded music friends who you think might enjoy these conversations a little peek behind the curtain with some of these artists and uh if you have a moment it would be really great if you could leave us a little review that'll really help us get the word out more and we'd love to hear back from you and just know how you're feeling about these conversations because it's something we're really excited about and we're just really thrilled to share all this information and all these new conversations with you all out there so until next time thank you so much be well take care of each other listen to lots of music thank you for joining us on this uh new endeavor for new deco and we'll talk to you next time ciao